We've devoted the month of January to reflecting on our church's vision. And as we've been saying, our vision is our dream. It's what we hope to see happen. And hopefully you are familiar with this by now, if you've been around the last few weeks. We state the City Church vision like this. Because Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of the city, we imagine people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel. Now, I'm not going to take the time to uh, flesh that all out. We've done that over the past couple of weeks, but this morning we are going to wrap up our vision series by reflecting on City Church's mission. Our mission speaks to how we are going to make our vision a reality. And here's how we state our mission at City Church. Our mission is to invite doubters, seekers, and followers to indwell God's story with others for the common good. Our mission is to invite doubters, seekers, and followers to indwell God's story with others for the common good. What I want to do this morning to help us uh, reflect on this mission is to ground our reflection in Acts chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You can also follow along in the worship guide because the passage is printed there for you. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And what we have here is a wonderful summary of the early Christian church what they believed, and how they lived out their faith together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Jesus, your word speaks of you on every page. Every passage of Scripture speaks of you and points us to you. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit in this moment, in this place, that you would invite us to enter into this narrative deeply, that we would first of all see you, but that we would second of all see ourselves and reflect on how it is that you desire for us to live as your people in the world. And we recognize that as we come to your word now, uh, there are some who are with us that don't yet believe it or unsure of it, um, and there are obstacles for all of us, ourselves. So we pray that you would help us to get over ourselves to see you. We pray that you would do this work uh, for your glory. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, I feel the need to be re-churched. What about you? Does that resonate with you at all? Um, As I read this text that I just read for you, I'm struck by how 
different, uh, largely speaking, this is from what is practiced in American Christianity. Uh, I was reading an article this past week, um, the title of which was something along the lines of the church for the common good, came from uh, Comment Magazine. And the author at one point says this, Christians in the West have been so bewitched by centuries of being in charge that we think the only alternatives are choosing to exercise influence or choosing not to, the former a function of engagement, the latter a function of disengagement. But consider Christians in Egypt or Iraq. We could add to that China with what's going on there. For millennia, small but resilient minority in their homelands. Should we judge them faithful or unfaithful, missional or monastic? Doubtless the church should seek to bless the societies in which it finds itself, including politically. But are such opportunities always ready to hand? Must we force others to listen to us? Relevance requires more than effort. Irrelevance is not a sin. The need to be re-churched, particularly in America, in our Western culture, because it is so natural for us, given our cultural surroundings and how we've been shaped, to, without even being fully aware of it, to assume that church is about us. I mean, we, we encounter this all the time. Well, this church doesn't have good enough programs. The music's not good enough. I don't have good enough programs. All of these things that we are accustomed to hearing in our culture, we have the need to be rechurched. Rechurched by Jesus and rechurched by his scripture this morning. As we come to Acts 2, these verses, I want us to think uh, about our mission statement in light of these uh, verses. So we're going to think about. Um, doubters, seekers, and followers, what it means to indwell God's story with others and also for the common good. So let's start with um, this, these first few words of our mission statement, doubters, seekers, and followers. You notice that um, at the very first verse that we read, verse 42, it begins with this, these words, and they. Who are and they? Who's being referred to here? Well, if you go back and look at the section right before the one that immediately precedes the verses that we're looking at, um, verse 41 says this, so those who received Jesus' word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who are they? They are new converts. They are new followers of Jesus. And we're going to get into in a few moments what they were doing together. But for now, I just want you to realize and to see who they are. They are new converts. They're new followers of Jesus. But new converts, converts were not the only ones connected to the Christian community at some level. If you go down later in the narrative, we find this interesting um, fact or characteristic described of the early church, that they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what is the result, the culmination of that? The very last uh, uh, verse, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we're not told, um, we're not given detail about uh, 
how connected these uh, folks were, um, but we're told that the church found favor with them. So in other words, the church is, is, is experiencing some degree of favor with those who are outside of the church. And it would make sense that some of these uh, people who don't yet believe were encountering um, Christian community, uh, coming into the community at some level, and we shouldn't be surprised about that when we read the rest of the New Testament. One specific example that comes to mind for me uh, in Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians. We actually uh, looked at Paul's ministry, some of his ministry in Corinth last week in Acts chapter 18. Uh, but later, writing later, uh, after uh, the establishment of the church in Corinth, Paul writes to the church, and at the end of uh, chapter 14, he says this. He's talking about um, worship, the, the worship gathering, and all that's taking place. That's the section of Corinthians. That's what it's devoted to. And he talks about an example of somebody coming into the midst of the gathered Christians who are worshiping and being so compelled by what they experience that they declare, God is really among you. So we have this clear uh, teaching from Paul that makes the assumption that those who don't yet believe are finding their way into the worship of God's people. Doubters, seekers, and followers. This is something that we have been committed to as a church from the very beginning. Uh, it is remarkable to think about this, hard to believe, but City Church started now nine years ago. In January of 2010, that's, that's nine years, right? Just making sure. In January of 2009, or 10, I just changed the date. Uh, in January of 2009, we began gathering in uh, our living room. And the very first time we ever gathered, there were people present who were not yet followers of Jesus. And it wasn't like we tricked them. Uh, we told them that we were gathering for one purpose and um, it was actually another. It wasn't that at all. They knew exactly what was going on, that we were seeking to start a church together. And I remember one individual um, in particular. Now, it's getting to the point, I think we pointed this out back when um, we honored Laura Williams for her service as treasurer because she had served for treasurer um, really almost nine years um, but I made the observation that we're now at the point where I think uh, Ian and Laura Williams, Bethany Roberts, my family are the only ones still around from that gathering in my living room. Well, no one else is saying otherwise, so you weren't there. But I think that's right. Um, but I remember one um, individual in particular who had literally never been to church in her life, had never been inside the walls of a church knew very little of the gospel, of Christianity, other than what she had been exposed to through media or through maybe some relationships, and most of that was not helpful whatsoever. But she came and continued to come. Why? Because she was seeking. She sensed that there was more to life. She sensed that something was tugging on her heart. She had doubts. Don't get me wrong. She had a lot of doubts that we would spend a lot of time talking about and talking through. But we wanted that to be normal from the beginning. We wanted to be a church that existed not just for ourselves, in other words, not just for people who already believed in Jesus and were committed to following him, but for those who 
were far off from Jesus, those who were disconnected from him and the life of his church. And that continues today. I think that that has been a part of our identity, our makeup from the beginning that has continued into the present day. In fact, there's some of you that I know of who are with us this morning, and you would not be willing to quite say that you believe yet, that you believe at all, that you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that everything the Bible says about him is true. But you're here, and you've been here, because something is happening to you. Your heart is being stirred, and that's a good thing. And that's the kind of community that we um, have been and we want to continue to be in the future, that we think not only of ourselves, but for those who don't yet believe. And we have to, for those of us who do believe, this means that we have to try our best, particularly those of us who are converted later in life, um, to remember what it's like not to believe. You might wonder, some of you, um, maybe you find it so redundant and, I don't know, maybe even annoying when you hear us open a service or a prayer before a sermon, and I pray for those who are um, believing, disbelieving, and unbelieving. Why do I do that? Because we want all of those kinds of people to be present, and we believe, and actually most of the time know that all of those categories of people are present. And we want to explicitly acknowledge it, And it's why in our preaching and our teaching, we seek to make things accessible. Um, We don't just simply throw, we try our best to not throw around theological jargon and terms without providing explanation. We're not trying to water anything down. That's not helpful because what we're talking about, the truth of the Christian faith is of incredible substance. It's life-changing. It has a transforming effect on people's lives, and we want people to get all of that. So it's not about watering it down, but it's about clarifying and making it accessible. Doubters, seekers, and followers, you are all welcome here. Is that a song? Sounds like it should be. I'll have Brad write a song um, about that, and we'll start singing it on Sundays. The expectation um, from the Old Testament through the New Testament is this that those who don't yet believe are finding their way into Christian community. They're finding their way into worship. And this, we shouldn't be surprised by it, like I've said, because this is how God has designed it to be. Going back to the Old Testament, God set apart his people, Israel, to be a display people to the nations. His goal in doing so was for Israel to reflect his glory, his beauty to the world, so that the world would look on and say, We want that. What is it? Now, Israel failed miserably, often we know. But that does not change the fact that this was God's design from the very beginning that his people be set apart to be a display people to the world. Now, let's talk about indwelling God's story with others. Coming back to Acts chapter 2, we have to realize here what it was like for these early Christians in their culture. Um, It wasn't uh, necessarily popular um, to be a follower of Jesus. And as you read through the book of Acts, that becomes more and more clear as persecution uh, occurs. Um, You see it all throughout, right? And so we have to realize, and, may, and here's what's happening. I've talked about this before, that in our culture today, particularly in 
um, the West and in America, um, a shift is uh, underway. And the shift is what some refer to as a shift into a post-Christian time or a secular time, Uh, just meaning that there was a time in our nation's past in which Christianity, or at least its values, were honored, respected, um, and maybe maybe affirmed to some degree. But that's all changing, and I'm not going to go into all of this uh, now, but I actually think that that's a good thing, because I think it's, it requires uh, those of us who are followers of Jesus to really be committed to what it is we believe. And, to, and the other thing with this is that if you look throughout the book of Acts, throughout church history, the church always uh, penetrates the culture most uh, effectively when it is a minority. That's hard for us to embrace. But we are better off as God's people as a minority. So it is a good thing for us that um, the the culture around us is changing and shifting. Um, Enough about that for now. We'll come back. We're actually going to be talking about those kinds of things in the Esther series that we're going to begin in two weeks. But for these early Christians, they were in a similar environment. And they faced the same temptations that we are faced with. And Largely speaking, if we imagine the spectrum, the two uh, extremes or ends of this, this uh, spectrum would be, on the one hand, to cave, to give in, to just simply say it's too hard to live differently, it's too hard to live as an alter- alternate community in a world that doesn't believe like us, so let's just forget it and let's just um, water down what we believe and be like everyone else. So, to adapt. On the other end of the spectrum would be the tendency or temptation to retreat, to acknowledge that, all right, it's too hard to live uh, differently in our culture. It's too hard to live as an alternate, alternate community. So let's just put up walls and try to uh, avoid rubbing shoulders with much as possible the culture around us. You don't see either of these as real options for the early Christians here in our passage. They are distinct. They are different. They are committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and fellowship, and to prayer. They are distinct. They are set apart as God's people. And the message, the apostles' teaching, was very different from the message and teaching in the culture around them. But they remained Uh, Devoted is the word that is used. They were devoted to it. But they did not retreat, did they? How does the passage end? And they found favor with those around them, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You don't see the early church giving in to either of those temptations. They remain devoted to the gospel while also living among a world that believes differently and inviting them to come into the Christian story to experience it and for the Holy Spirit to awaken them to the truth of it. But let's talk for a moment about this detail of them being devoted to the apostles' teaching. This um, speaks of a high commitment to learning in the early church to learning of Jesus and submitting to Jesus and his authority in their lives. The apostles were those who witnessed the resurrection. 
So you think of somebody like the Apostle Paul, for example. The Apostle Paul uh, had that dramatic moment, we talked about this last week uh, in Acts 18, that dramatic moment in his life when he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the risen Jesus commissioned Paul and said, here's the call that is now on your life. You're going to go proclaim the gospel um, to others. So the apostles were those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And we're told that the early church was devoted to their teaching, their teaching that the source of, of which was Jesus himself. And we get this, uh, this additional detail about wonders, signs being done that validated the apostles' teaching. Now, we don't have time to have a full conversation about um, was, uh, the, were those kinds of signs and wonders, was that just specific and only for the early church? Should we expect that today. The answer is yes. Yes to both. That, that's my answer. Yes. Yes to both. That um, I think that to some degree we can expect God to dramatically work. We can expect the Holy Spirit to do amazing things uh, in our midst. But we also do have to recognize that there was something unique about uh, what was happening here in the early church. One of those things that was unique is that they didn't yet have the written word, including the New Testament. But we'll just leave it at that. The answer is both end, okay? And we'll, we'll save that for another time. But regardless of that, the, the signs and wonders that were being uh, done validated the apostles' teaching. It confirmed that it was actually true. And we, we see miracles like this happening in clusters throughout the biblical story that come and accompany the message to validate its truth. And so the apostles here are acting as interpreters of Jesus' ministry and unpacking it and bringing it to bear on the lives of people. They're guardians of a tradition, the tradition of, of the gospel with Jesus as its source. And here's the practical application for us. The early church was not relying on their personal experiences alone. They embraced an authority. And that authority was Jesus and this tradition that was being handed down to them. Now, on the one hand, you know, this, this is troubling for um, our culture because we don't want there to be one tradition that is true or right. We resist authority and, and all of those things, and, and I get it. But on the other hand, I think that there is a longing in our culture, a longing inside of us to have something that is actually rooted to have something that is anchored. And so that's how I want you to think about this apostles' teaching, the tradition of the gospel, the Christian faith and story as it comes to us. What the Christian faith has the power to do is to anchor us deeply, to make us secure in our identity, to help us to answer the big questions of life. It roots us. Now, does it um, answer every single question for us in the way that we would like for it to be answered? No. But the biblical story presents us with the truth that we need to know to live as faithful disciples in the world. And so I talked about this a, a few weeks ago uh, when we were um, talking about um, the, the, our vision statement, this idea of imagining, and we do that through uh, immersing ourselves in the biblical story and through prayer. But this is why the Word of God is so central for us. Um, it's why we uh, proclaim it every Sunday when we gather for worship. It's why we hear it read in other 
uh, venues. It's why um, in classes we're taught from it. It's why ultimately in our community groups, what we do, we want to be based on the authority of Scripture. Why? Because together as a people, we need to be anchored. We need to be rooted. And there is an authority that is above ourselves. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. They're also devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, there's all kinds of discussion about, does this refer to the Lord's Supper, to communion, or um, to them um, meeting in their homes and, and having meals together? The answer is yes and yes. Again, both end is my interpretation of this, because I think that the first mention there that I just read for you early in the passage um, probably does refer to the Lord's Supper, while later on it's clear they're breaking bread in their homes, I think, is um, sharing general meals together. But I think it's both end, and actually in the early church, they both were often done together. And we also have this indication that they're daily going to the temple for worship, but then they're also, as we observed, gathering in homes. And I think that's a helpful rhythm for us to think about. We gather uh, weekly on Sundays to be anchored in the story, be anchored in God's story, to be reminded of its truth, uh, to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and how we... um, are saved from our sin and brought into relationship with God by His grace, how our identity because of that is, is secure, and how we are set, uh, set apart as His people to go out and live in the world. We need that reminder every week because as I go throughout my week, and I know this is true for you, I, um, I, I, I get to a point where I don't feel rooted. I don't feel anchored. And, and the temptation there is to trust in my own authority, my own experience. And so I need to come back with God's people on Sundays to be reminded of the story, that it's true, and it defines who I am and who we are uh, as a people. But then there's this uh, other rhythm of throughout the week, gathering more often together. And so this is why we say here at City Church that the church does not equal a building. I'm not saying that buildings are unimportant, um, but the church does not equal a building. The church equals a community, a people. And so on Sundays, we don't go to church. Rather, the church goes to worship. And we see this balance, or not not so much a balance, but this rhythm of um, corporate worship together, but then also corporate gathering throughout the week in smaller settings. And you don't need me to tell you this, but that um, helps us land on why community groups are so central uh, in the life of our church. Um, This has been true from the beginning, and there have been times where we've thought, okay, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to do this well. Maybe it'd be easier to do something else instead of community groups. Maybe we'll just put all of our time and energy into a Sunday gathering and let everything else Um, just let it just play out how it will. But we keep coming back to Scripture, the the tradition of the apostles, and we realize that, yes, relationships are difficult. Gathering in community is really hard, but it's also good because it forces us to lean into Jesus and to ask for his power. And it's how we learn more about the fullness of God and his story through one another, through our various perspectives and so forth. And so, In the past few months, we have uh, re-emphasized community groups. One way we've done that 
um, last year was that when Margie, uh, Margie Commanded, came back from her leave of absence, we changed her title from Director of Congregational Life to Director of Community Life. And one of the reasons for that is that she now, as part of her responsibilities, works with me to help um, oversee and coordinate community group ministry. Um, We've also um, become more intentional about uh, training and equipping for our leaders. Back in the fall, in October, we did an all-day intensive uh, in which we reviewed um, the foundations of our community group ministry, our philosophy of ministry, and why we believe it's so important. And what we are doing this year is we are meeting Um, Each leadership team of a community group is being coached. They have a coach, and the coach meets with them at least six times throughout the year um, to help equip, support, and resource. Um, There's more that I could say about that, but the point is is that we believe that this is really important. It's a foundational uh, ministry activity for us as a church, and it's how we get at this rhythm that we see in Acts 2. The importance of gathering for corporate worship together but then also the fleshing out of the gospel in smaller settings, in relationships uh, throughout the week. And then finally, prayers are mentioned. This one's intriguing to me, and the prayers. So these prayers seem to be a a specific thing. And most likely what is meant here is that these are corporate, uh, liturgical prayers that you could say. So for example, Our confession of sin that we read together this morning is a liturgical prayer. Uh, It's one that we read together corporately. But also in the early church, we also see more natural, instinctive prayer that breaks out. I mentioned this um, a few weeks ago, but why pray? What is the significance of prayer in our lives? Ultimately, it's a dependency issue. See, this is one of the ways that we engage with the authority of the biblical story, the apostles' tradition, is that we pray it. We submit to it through prayer, and we seek the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say one more thing about this that I think is really important and helpful. Uh, I mentioned this at the introduction of the service. Because of the culture in which we're increasingly living, um, and it's becoming more and more post-Christian, secular, whatever you want, to, whatever words you want to use to describe it, I think you could say that it is becoming more and more disenchanted. We don't believe in transcendence as much anymore. We believe that what we see is what we get. And this creates all kinds of problems for us, but one fundamental problem that it creates for us is that we can't escape the fact that we are created in God's image. And we desire transcendence. And so do you see how we get stuck? That we're told and we're led to believe that there is nothing bigger than ourselves, yet we long for that. Prayer is one of the ways that we can cultivate wonder and awe and transcendence in our lives. Because as we come to God in prayer through the Holy Spirit, we're clearly reminded that there is something much bigger than ourselves. And there is a world, uh, that, a spiritual world that we can't see that um, is far more important and defining for the physical world that we live in. If you want to become more and more enchanted, if you want to become a person who is marked by more awe and wonder in your life, commit to praying more frequently. 
and asking God to do this work in you. But like I said, the very act, the very posture of praying uh, communicates that there's something bigger than ourselves. And you've, you've been hearing me mention this um, over the last several weeks and even going back to, to last year. Prayer is something that we want to uh, make a priority of more in the future. It started last year with uh, Lauren Bales teaching a class on prayer. Um, we created a prayer team, if you will, of, uh, including Tom and Denise Stout, who um, most weeks when they're here are available for prayer after the service. And we are approaching that as the beginning of something more, of having like a, a full legitimate prayer team that um, uh, has a prayer ministry in the life of our church. And we'll, we'll eventually get there, but we're taking these baby steps and the reason we're doing it is because we believe in the power of prayer, and we want to see prayer prioritized more for us as a church family. All right, um, with others. So we indwell God's story. How do we do this? Through um, the, the teaching of the gospel, through prayer, through the fellowship uh, with one another. But that fellowship piece um, also captures the with others part of our mission statement. And the reason that we include with others is because the Christian life is not an individual project. You can't, I'll say it this way, you can't be a good Christian without community. You can't. It's impossible. Because God designed us for relationships. The way that we experience deep formation um, in our lives happens in the context of church community. We can't escape it. We need each other. And what does a, a community, a church look like in which Jesus is really in charge? Well, it's laid out for us here in Acts 2. Giving up of possessions, meeting the needs of, of one another. These are very practical things, but they're all things that are extremely difficult because what does it require or demand of you? be selfless, to die to self, to put others' needs above your own. And you see the connection here back to the gospel, or at least you should. This is what Christian community does for us. It pushes us to the end of ourselves. And this happens for me all the time in community. Like I, you know, I don't want to die to self. I don't want to have to um, seek other people's needs above my own. It's not how I'm naturally wired because of my sin, but I have to keep coming back to Jesus and who Jesus is and what he's done for me and what he's done for us. And all who believed, it says, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And from here, I think it helps us answer the question of how did they find favor with the people around them? Well, the people around them saw how they lived together, saw how they lived as an alternate community. They saw how there was something different, something provocative, and they wanted in on it. They wanted to learn more about the source of it. Finally, for the common good. So we already um, touched on what is the result of all of this? The result is favor with the people around them. Now, I think we need to come back to the quote that I read at the beginning. I think that we can conf often confuse favor 
with influence and power. Favor with the people does not necessarily mean that we're getting influence and power in the culture around us. Nowhere does Scripture promise God's people that sort of thing. And that's why when we, as God's people, seek power and influence in that way, we're actually being counterproductive and we're um, going counter to God's purposes for us because what God intends for us is to lay down our lives, to not seek power and influence in that way, but to actually seek to love. And you see, when we seek to love, when we prioritize love, what happens is is that we end up with greater influence in the lives of people. But not the influence in which we're addicted to power and and, and control, but the kind of influence that can be summarized with this word, favor. Favor with God's people. I mean, favor with the people around us. Implying that there's something real, there's something of depth, there's something of substance going on. And people want to learn more, not necessarily about us, but about Jesus because he is the source of our life together. Community is not an end to itself. Remember what we said. God's people from the very beginning have been set apart to be a display people to the world. Our community life together is meant to point to something bigger than ourselves, our own community. It's meant to point to the beauty and truth and power of the gospel so that others will encounter it and want more of it for themselves. John Chrysostom was um, a preacher in, I believe, the third century. And he said this, and I think what is interesting about this quote is that it helps identify for us that this has um, the best of Christianity, this has always marked it. This is the rule of most perfect Christianity, its most exact definition, its highest point, namely the seeking of the common good. For nothing can make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbors. Why do we care for our neighbors? Why do we do it? Ultimately, we do it because Jesus cared for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so by doing the same and seeking to imitate him, to to imitate his pattern, we get to know more of Jesus and have to rely on the gospel more, but we also get to make Jesus known. Jesus cared for us, and so therefore we care for our neighbors. And this has been true for us as a church from the beginning as well. Um, One of the most uh, encouraging and exciting things and greatest blessings to me in ministry has been to start this church in this particular neighborhood and have maybe one or two households uh, a part of the church from the neighborhood to now um, have upwards of 15 households in this neighborhood a part of the church. Now, if you've, you've been around, you've heard me talk about this. There are no second-class citizens at City Church in our church membership. If you live outside of the neighborhood, the city, that's okay. We um, want you there. I mean, we're not going to turn you down if you want to move in here, but we want you wherever God has placed you to live out the gospel there. But this is where God has located us as a worshiping community, and we seek to care for our, our neighbors well here because Jesus has cared well for us. This is something I take very seriously. It's something that I, I hold uh, closely to my heart. 
It's why we have started things like the third place. It's, like we, it's why we um, involve ourselves in community life in a variety of ways. It's not just simply to try to do good generically. It's so that we might be a display people to real people around us so that they might hear the gospel, that they might see the gospel in action, and one day by God's grace, be one of those households in this neighborhood that become a part of our church family. All right, that wraps up our vision series. There's a whole lot more that I could say. Um, I'll be saying some more specific things uh, briefly in the congregational meeting after the service. Uh, Next week, uh, one of the missionaries that we support, Nick Owens, who does campus ministry at the University of Delaware, is going to be here to preach. And then the following week, we will get into our uh, study of the book of Esther. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful this morning for this picture that we have from your word of your church as it's meant to be. The brothers and sisters who were in this church uh, were not perfect. They were like us, flawed, sinful, sure that they had relational tensions and conflicts that they had to work through. We, we actually know that from other examples that we have in Acts. But we're grateful that we can study this passage and look into it and have our hearts stirred. I pray that you would awaken us to the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would shape us and form us into people of awe and wonder as we engage seriously and deeply with your word, as we engage with you in prayer, and as we engage with one another. We pray that you would draw together all of these threads of our community life in such a way that we might be a display people to those around us who don't yet know you. Work out your purposes among us. Uh, I know that I personally am often skeptical that you're able to do that because of my own sin and my lack of faith. But I pray that you would remind us of your power and ability to work and that you would give us the the great blessing of seeing tangible uh, examples of that in this coming year. We pray in Christ's name, amen.